Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Back again. Welcome back. This is episode two of The Long Tale. So if you have not listened to episode one, go back and listen to episode one or this shit ain't gonna make any sense. But for those of you who've journeyed with me through episode one, you know that Chris, Chris Anderson, Mr. Anderson, has taken us down this great journey talking about the internet and contrasting how business was done before the internet and the tyranny of the local. You've got your your country store, even your supermarkets, even your big box retailer, and then how with the advent of the internet and unlimited shelf space that basically costs nothing, how turns out that human beings, we as just people, we demand and we enjoy a lot more variety than we previously thought because with the mass market with the mainstream hits big hits successful blockbusters dominated but now with the internet we put those assumptions to the test that that is all people like that people really just want some strong action heroes and some big blockbuster movies but when that is put to the test and there are millions of niches it turns out we fragment we break off into a million pieces We all are interested in our own brand of weird, and that is what Chris has been explaining to us. So let's dive right in and get into the meat of this shit, the theory of the long tail. And Chris says, the theory of the long tail can be boiled down to this. Our culture and economy are increasingly shifting away from a focus on a relatively small number of hits, mainstream products, markets, at the head, at the front, at the top, the cliff, of that demand curve and moving towards a huge number of niches in the tail you jump off that cliff you ride that bitch down you you get down that steep steep hill until until it's descending descending now it's descending very slowly very slowly very slowly and then you ride that shit forever and it never reaches zero and there's demand in all of those niches of the long tail in an era without constraints of physical shelf space and other bottlenecks of distribution narrowly targeted goods and services can be can be as economically attractive as mainstream fare but that's not good enough demand must follow this new supply so we've got this huge fucking supply this new supply all this new music all these new books all these new ideas all this new everything but there's got to be a demand for it because As Chris says, otherwise the tail will wither because the tail is measured not just in available variety, but in people who gravitate to it. The true shape of demand is revealed only when consumers are offered infinite choice. So basically just saying it doesn't fucking matter if there's a lot of choices, but all of them are like, would you like this color of shit? Would you like this piece of shit? Would you like this shit? It's a little pebble. Would you like this? It's a pile. Like if, it, if it's all shit, nobody fucking cares. There's got to be a demand for it too. But there is. And Chris is going to take us there. The long tail starts again with a million niches. 
but it isn't meaningful until those niches are populated with people who want them. Collectively, all of this translates into six themes of the long tail age. So we're gonna do we're gonna do the six themes, which are pretty quick. And then we're gonna jump into hardcore, the three ingredients necessary for the long tail to work. So the six themes. In virtually all markets, there are far more niche goods than hits. That's theme one. That ratio is growing exponentially larger as the tools of production become cheaper and, and more ubiquitous everywhere. So think about all. So in all markets, there's far more niches than hits. And that shit's growing. That's theme one. Theme two, the cost of reaching those niches is now falling dramatically. Thanks to a combination of forces including digital distribution, powerful search engines, and a critical mass of internet penetration, <laughs> online markets are resetting the economics of retail. Thus, in many markets, it's now possible to offer a massively expanded variety of products. So, theme two, it's way fucking easier to reach these niches now. Johnny Scoville, you know, that pepper fiend, does not have to just try to sell super hot fucking almonds to all of his friends. No, now with the, the cost to reach me, Troy, kind of competitive, kind of addictive personality, start eating some hot peppers. Man, I guess this endorphin rush is real. Wow, this is the most inefficient way to take drugs ever, but like it kind of is, uh, reaches me because the costs of reaching me have dropped so low. Theme three, simply offering more variety does not shift demand by itself. Consumers must be given ways to find niches that suit their particular needs and interests. A range of tools and techniques from recommendations to rankings are effective at doing this. How did I find Johnny Scoville? Let me think about that. I think I found Johnny Scoville from Hot Ones. So Hot Ones, that Eat Hot Wings interview show, pretty famous, very smart, because they go in and find, they find uh, it's a niche interview show, but then they piggyback off the, the social network of their guests. So they interview celebrities. So there's all these followers of celebrities that then, boom, seed this Hot Ones show. Super smart. But... It's very obscure because some of the some of the sauces are like niche level spicy, like so fucking spicy. Da bomb, oh my god. I mean, we I have a good friend, not a lot of good friends, but I have a good friend, and he is a very responsible adult. He's always been kind of responsible. Like freshman year of college, he was not responsible, but then he like grew responsibility. I'm like I'm responsible too, but more in the sense of like. You know, in college, I'm gonna get good grades. Okay, that's the social contract. We're like, now, I'm gonna have a job, I'm gonna have enough money, I'm gonna try to get rich as hell. But like, as long as that's satisfied, man, I'll get drunk as hell if I want to, or like, you know, I'll make a 40-foot bonfire. I don't care, I'll shoot guns for five hours, whatever. But he's just a responsible guy. Well, I had him try this hot sauce, Da Bomb. I was like, hey man, look, I just tried it, it's real spicy, but you can try it, and I'm just telling you it's really spicy. But he's like, okay, I'll try it. And then it was so fucking spicy. He drank five Coors Lights and then finally loosened up and became a situation. It was great. But that is so niche that Hot Ones springboarded to Johnny Scoville, springboarded to Carolina Reaper reactions, as well as the Pepper Apprentice. And the way that I got there is from the recommendations because I there's got to be a way for me to find the niches. You know, if there's more variety and I can't find them, it doesn't fucking matter. Theme four, once there's this massively expanded variety and there's filters like the recommendation that got me to Johnny Scoville, the demand curve flattens. 
meaning think so think about that like that's a that's a word that's a phrase but like we can think through it so demand curve flattens so if it's not flat that means at the beginning it's very very fucking steep so steep ass hill then it go, drops off and it basically goes to zero okay now demand curve flattening would be maybe there's still that that steep hill at the top that's maybe not quite as steep but then it drops off a lot slower and then it extends a lot longer and what that's reflecting is that demand is like it's representing people so there's all these fucking people out there and initially you know people just demanded that beginning cliff they just like i don't fucking know man like i'll watch die hard but now the demand curve has flattened meaning that popularity of obscure bullshit increasing theme five all those niches add up if a million people pay you one dollar bitch you got a million dollars theme six and final theme once all of this is in place the natural shape of demand is revealed undistorted by distribution bottlenecks scarcity of information and limited choice of shelf space what's more that shape is far less hit driven than we've been led to believe instead it's as diverse as the population itself bottom line a long tail is just culture unfiltered by economic scarcity now that's crazy to me so think about that think about what that's saying so that's saying built into us as human beings left to our natural devices if we fucking just got our way if if there was no constraints we would have crazy different preferences okay so that's that's the that's the six themes but there's three ingredients three fucking forces in the recipe of the long tail make it get it out there help me find it how long tails emerge so none of all that shit that we've talked about for fucking whatever how long none of that happens without one big economic trigger that it's all based on reducing the cost of reaching niches so what, what causes those costs to fall um so you know this varies from market to market but the explanation typically involves three powerful forces coming into play the first force is the democratization of production so that's like fucking buzzwords so what does that mean that means make it that means democratization so spreading out so if stuff's authoritarian that means that like one person has all the power democracy everybody has the power so what he's saying is that the tools of production so he's saying that instead of these record labels instead of these you know like if i want to record a podcast back in the day you know 1995 if i wanted to record a radio show i'd have a studio i had to be with whatever studio uh, but now that's spread out the democratization of the tools of production anybody can fucking make anything and that's that's like music that's podcast but that's also a company you know it's so easy right now to start a company so start an llc on like some fucking service you pay them a hundred dollars and it like is automated and templates and they, you start an llc create a website okay use squarespace that's what my website is and it's like pretty shitty but that's because i spent zero time on it um, but it could be amazing load in credit card processing apps to squarespace okay um just like spend some thought making sure your taxes and fucking shit are, are tracked correctly and then do 200 dollars test six different ads on instagram figure out what works put in five hundred dollars figure out what works put a thousand dollars 
And like, if you found a pocket of demand, bitch, you got a business. So that's a democ. But but but, like backing up, in uh, in developing countries, a lot of times it's almost fucking impossible to start a business. Or even in 1980s, 1970s. I mean, you had to have a lawyer. You had to do this. You had to do that. Had to be blah blah blah. Like I could seriously be five beers in, and I could start a company, like a legal definition of a company with a website that can process credit cards in like five hours. That's the democratization of the tools of production. Holy shit. That's force one. Second force, get it out there. The second force is cutting the cost of consumption by democratizing distribution. Again, crazy ass buzzwords, but think about what that means. Okay, so before, let's say that I was a musician. Okay, let's ignore, let's pretend that somehow I had enough money to do the production part. You know, I had a studio or I had a connection or whatever. But now the distribution, you know, the, uh, how the fuck do you do that? You know, everything's on records. Okay, so the only people that can enjoy your shit have a record make, a record player. And how do you get the records out? You gotta sell them in a store. You can't sell them to like the individual. So you gotta like do some fucking relationship with a record store. But then the record store only ho has hits. So like you gotta become a big enough hit. So you gotta like tour around and total bullshit. Think about my podcast right now. So not very successful, whatever, I don't care. Um, but every person that I send a link to my podcast, like let's say some influencer, I can be 100% sure. I don't even, I don't even wanna say 99% sure because like, I mean, it have to be somebody who's purposely deciding to misbehave. That I can be 100% sure that they have a phone. And I can be pretty fucking sure that they have Spotify. So if I send somebody a Spotify link, that's like basically like me figuring out who has a, re a record player, who would like my shit, and then giving them a record, walking it over to their house, putting it on their record player, and saying, here, have this for free. That's how, that's the democratization of distribution. That cost me, that cost me one minute. It would have cost somebody else back in the day with the record delivery thing, would have cost them, I don't know, $26 and six hours. Think of that difference. And we're in the early stages. So force two is that consumption is getting easier and easier because the distribution, distribution is better. And the third force is connecting supply and demand. Help me find it. So introducing consumers to these new and newly available goods and driving demand down the tail. So, I mean, this can take the form of anything from like actual Google search, because that's, I mean, that's a smart search to iTunes recommendations, to Amazon recommendations, to I found an entertaining YouTube channel, Johnny Scoville, and turns out he sells super spicy almonds. So I was entertaining myself. I was basically watching a TV show until I developed a relationship with this person. And then it's like, that seems challenging. That seems interesting. I want to support him. He's a badass. Um, he's such a fucking man. And uh, okay, fuck it. I'll spend $25 on almonds. And so that's like, I never would have found that. But he found it through the connection of supply and demand from these filters, from these recommendations that uh you know there's a lot of the book will talk talk a little later about more specifics on that but i mean there's all these different ways now with the internet we can intelligently find 
niches. So think of each of these three forces as representing a new set of opportunities in the emerging long tail marketplace. The democratized tools of production are leading to a huge increase in the number of producers. I mean, I'm doing a fucking podcast and I'm cheap as hell. So, you know, maybe I'm going to just do this for like three years and no one gives a shit. Um, but if there's 10,000 me's, but they're all totally different, and they're all super niche and they're all like whatever the hell they want to do. I don't know, a hundred, hundred of them are going to have found a vein of gold that resonate with so many people and then they're going to become popular. So there's all these producers, there's new markets, new marketplaces. And finally there's recommendations and there's a way to, to tap the distributed intelligence of millions of consumers and match people with the stuff that suits them best. And so that's, it's leading to all sorts of new recommendations and marketing methods. I mean, and essentially there's new tastemakers and it's no longer that critic that writes the column in the city paper. It's Johnny Scoville says that this pepper's good. I will buy it because I trust him. The next three chapters are going to explore, are going to explore these new business opportunities in detail. Now we get to a crazy concept. The new producers never underestimate the power of a million amateurs with keys to the factory. On the night of February 23rd, 1987, the underground Kamiokanda 2 observatory in Japan detected 11 neutrinos in a burst lasting 13 seconds. Which, for us knuckle-dragon baboons who don't know shit about stars, is basically how you look for supernovas, aka stars blowing up. Um, and I, I just wish that, like, why does everybody gotta sound all official? Like, I love blowing stuff up. It's great. But, you know, I hear supernova. I'm like, oh, that sounds stupid. But then when you tell me it's fucking stars blowing up, well, holy shit, I'm a little bit more interested. Um, Chris talks about some bullshit science about, like, how to fucking find a supernova. But the summary is something like a telescope has to be pointed at the right part of the sky. And then you do some measurement, and then you find the neutrinos, and then you're like, yeah. Uh, but needless to say, there's a lot of sky to watch. So how do we watch all that sky? I mean, is it is it a $50 billion government grant? And then there's government observatories all over the place looking for supernovas exploding? But like, what's the case for science why they should do that? Okay, well, that might not work. Is it a, is it a private corporation? that's somehow looking for supernovas and sells a magazine. Like, I don't know, that might not work. Nope. There are thousands of amateur astronomers that are fucking nerds and pumped as hell about looking at the sky. So the modern day astronomy organization is loosely centralized, but then realizes that, hey, all we gotta do, it, you know, this guy over here, Bill Johnson, if we, if we help him get uh, a neutrino looking telescope he will cry and he'll be so excited and he will do this for 25 days straight seven hours a day and he'll do it for free and he'll be thankful and there's 40,000 Bill Johnson so the astronomy world's like you know what? we got this big problem there's a lot of sky to look at because we got to be actually looking at it what if we just uh, kind of like loosely employed these 40,000 Bill Johnsons and we'll like give them shit they can't fuck up. Like we're not going to let them, we're going to let them ruin our organization. But uh, here, here's a bunch of telescopes. Like you pay us, but we'll give you a crazy good deal. And you know, here's some software 
these are computer guided like we got this and then you got all these bitches looking at the same time at the sky everywhere and in 1987 supernova 1987a so creative was observed by ian shelton so he was a canadian grad school dropout but he was he was janiting cleaning an observatory in the chilean andes mountains in exchange for time on its 24-inch telescope when academic astronomers weren't using it. First of all, what a badass. That's like the guy who's like, hey, listen, let me just, let me just fucking, I will clean the the gym. I will clean the whole gym if you just let me train MMA at your school. I don't have a, I don't have a dad, I don't have a mom, I don't have anything, but I just want to fight. That's what that guy's doing. And it paid off because one of those free times, there was a windy night on February 23rd, and he decided to use the telescope to run a three-hour exposure on the large magnetic cloud. I think that's a thing, like the large magnetic cloud. Maybe my notes are shitty, but as it happened, exactly 168,000 years earlier and exactly 168,000 light years away, far as fuck, a star had exploded on the edge of the Tarantula Nebula. And this was giant. And he saw it. He watched it and he recorded it because no one had seen a supernova. But the crazy thing is that is how one of the greatest astronomical discoveries of the 20th century unfolded. That's like Einstein, except Einstein actually was 40,000 people. What? A key theory explaining how the universe works was confirmed thanks to amateurs in New Zealand and Australia, a former amateur trying to turn professional in Chile and professional physicists in the United States and Japan. And this is fucking good. Good job. I'm glad they did this. Whoever is the leader in this thing is, is squared away, as, as the great Jacob would say, because when a, a scientific paper finally announced the discovery to the world, all of them shared authorship. That's nice. Because the pros and amateurs worked together. And Chris says, we are entering the pro-am era. Demos, a British think tank, described this supernova event in 2004 as a key moment in the arrival of the pro-am era, a time when professionals and amateurs worked side by side. Astronomy used to be done by big science. You know what I said before, $5 billion government grant, thousands of fucking, I don't know, star houses all around the fucking world, I, whatever. But now it's done by pro-am collaboratives, uh, earth-destroying asteroids. So that's a problem. Like, hey, we got all this nice shit. We found out capitalism, everything's great. You know, we got guns, all is well, but could all be destroyed by an asteroid coming towards Earth. So, we've got a pretty big vested interest collectively in making sure that doesn't happen, but we have the same sky-looking problem. So NASA often calls on amateurs to watch for specific asteroids that might be headed for Earth, an observation task coordinated via an email message group, which that just shows that History doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Like, there's there's a thousand percent a better way to organize that. However, it doesn't fucking matter because, like, that is a demand. That's a group of people who all have the same interest. And, like, yeah, it's they're doing the post-it note system, but legit. Email message group called Minor Planet Mailing List, run by some guy. Oh, okay, some guy named Richard Kowalski, a 42-year-old baggage handler at US Airways in Florida by day and an astronomer by night. Think about that. Nah, like, first of all, fuck you, NASA, you need to employ that guy, but whatever. 
Uh, some of the 800 amateurs on the list record their observations for fun. Others hope to be, hope to be immortalized by having an important discovery named after them. But what's notable is none of them do it for money. Uh, SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and then At Home. SETI At Home is a project that harnesses the spare computing power of more than half a million home computers. So basically, I'm like, eh, bitch, I'll contribute to the human race finding aliens. Sure. Will you need me to download an app? Okay. And then that app runs in the background, and, you know, I give 1% of my computer's power. Not enough to affect anything, but with the long tail of the internet, enough to create the biggest supercomputer that's ever lived. We ain't found aliens yet, but I believe. But this isn't just playing out in astronomy. It's playing out in countless other fields. You know, just as the electric guitar and the garage democratized pop music 40 years ago, desktop creation and production tools are democratizing the studio. I mean, GarageBand. I'm, a, I'm recording this shit in Audacity. Um, you know, a microphone delivered on Amazon. I mean, the, the barriers to entry are so fucking low. Um, and the consequences of all this are we are starting to shift from being passive consumers to active producers and we're doing it for the love of the game you know it's one thing to see a movie or listen to music and to think genius you know that some gifted person and and some exalted apparatus that you don't have you know put together this unique work unique work of art but when you look behind the curtain and you realize like wait a second my, my phone camera is as good as that camera how the fuck did they have a million views Holy shit, you know, Blippi, that, that fucking 35-year-old man who dresses up like a child has 5 million subscribers and does kids shows. He's making 10 times what the CEO at, at the company I work at makes. Holy shit. So maybe I should dress up like a fucking child and, and try to, you know, do kids shows. But that's not the, that's not the principle. The principle is... There's a lot more producers because they're like, what the fuck? I can do this. Wikipedia. Now, it's the prototypical example of the wisdom of crowds. You know, an unexplainable island in the sea of traditional businesses. And we're not going to spend too much time on it because I've talked about Wikipedia before. But um, he does quote Dan Pink, Mr. Pink, who says, he's just such a learned gentleman, Mr. Pink. He says, instead of clearly delineated lines of authority, Wikipedia depends on radical decentralization and self-organization, open source in its purest form. Most encyclopedias start to fossilize the moment they're printed on a page. However, add wiki software and some helping hands and you get something self-repairing and almost alive. A different production model creates a product that's fluid, fast, fixable, and free. And fuck you with your alliteration, Mr. Pink. I remember. But we're not going to go into the depth of that. Like, just Google Wikipedia. You'll figure it out. But um, the two crazy fucking things are, one, is it it heals like an organic organism. Whoa. What makes Wikipedia really extraordinary is that it improves over time, organically healing itself as its huge and ever-growing army of tendrils work like an immune system. Ever vigilant and quick to respond to anything that threatens the organism, and like a biological system, it evolves, selecting for traits that help it stay one step ahead of the predators and pathogens in its ecosystem. Bitch, no, that's insane. The second crazy part that they bring up, they being Chris, brings up about 
Wikipedia is the long tail. And so basically what he covers is that comparing Encyclopedia Britannica to Wikipedia, you know, for the for almost for well, for all of the entries that Encyclopedia Britannica has, Wikipedia and Britannica are, you know, kind of indistinguishable. You know, there's pros for Britannica, there's pros for Wikipedia, where they're relatively close. But Britannica ends at 120,000 entries. Wikipedia is 120 times bigger than that. 120 times bigger than the previous largest encyclopedia in the world. I mean, nerds from long ago would read that shit for fun and not be able to finish that. Now multiply by 120. Sea sections, Okinawa, regression analysis. Here, the Wikipedia model begins to pull ahead of its professional competition. Unlimited space means that Wikipedia entries tend to be longer and more comprehensive and spread out way, way deeper. So for the, for zero to 120,000, and that's entries, so zero to 120,000 entries, Britannica and Wikipedia are similar quality, you know, pretty similar. But then Britannica ends, and Wikipedia takes that, that quality that Britannica has, that's a, this fucking commercial business, Wikipedia's free, takes that, that same quality from 120,000 to, I don't know, 200 million entries, and they're all as good as Britannica. What? Because think about it, all it takes, like let's look at, let's look at IDPA. So International Defensive Pistol Association, a, an obscure pistol competition federation. And it's like, it's in Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, there might be an, there might be an entry that says something like, pistol shooters focus on their front sight. They stare at the front sight and the target goes blurry. Because think about it, if, if you're making a giant fucking commercial encyclopedia, you know, you don't have the bandwidth to hire an expert about shooting and have them write the article and then, and then come back and look at it and proof it. You know, you're just gonna do the basics, like something that you can find out that's pretty true. Now, let's look at Wikipedia. There's probably 20,000 top pistol shooters in the world that are like the best of the best. Like could go on any SWAT team and, and kick everybody's ass. 20,000 of those people. And all it takes is for one of those to decide, you know what, this Wikipedia article about like pistol fundamentals sucks dick. You know, I'm gonna rewrite this. And they spend two weeks, they write it perfectly, and they, they write about the isosceles stance, they write about all this shit, and then it goes live. And then there's another of the 20,000 that's like, holy shit, that's a really good article, but it's missing this one thing and I could rewrite it a little bit and I'm gonna rewrite it. But now, I mean, it is, that is 40 times better than what Britannica had, maybe 100 times better. And that's the world of peer production. It doesn't just apply in writing, you know, it just doesn't just apply in movies, in books, it applies fucking everywhere. Um, you know, it's the extraordinary internet-enabled phenomenon of mass volunteerism and amateurism. But, you know, even more broadly, that's just, it's proving out the point of the wisdom of crowd. I mean, we're at the dawn of an age where most producers in any domain are unpaid, and the main difference between them and their professional counterparts is simply the shrinking gap in the resources available to them to extend the ambition of their work. When the tools of production are available to everyone, everyone becomes a producer. You know, picture quality. Picture quality used to be something that photographers had a monopoly on. You know, think in 1970. You know, to get a really, really nice picture, it'd probably be like, I don't know, 
$1,000 to do family pictures. And the photographer had a huge monopoly on that because there's probably, I don't know, 50 photographers in Indianapolis that all had the really, really expensive, nice cameras and, and you'd go rent their time and it was worth it. Unfortunately, iPhone 10 camera on every single person's phone is better than that 1980s Pro camera. So fuck, I wouldn't want to be that guy. And eventually, I mean, you can't you can't tell me that this won't flip until everyone is carrying around with them at all times in their phone professional recording gear. I mean, I'm recording this on some uh, like cool ass microphone recording device. It's basically, I mean, and the interface is really shitty. It would not be hard to just incorporate this technology into a phone and everybody now can record a podcast that is passable if not good. I mean, how many amazing conversations, how many beautiful songs, how much other shit has happened, but the person just didn't have the resources to document. And there's a there's a little bit of an unsaid question of like, why does somebody do that? Like, why would somebody create shit for Wikipedia or spend their time, you know, doing astronomy or have 45 pages of notes and make a detailed podcast about some obscure book? Uh, well, the question is key to understanding the long tail. Probably because so much of what populates the curve does not start with commercial aim. The motives to create are not the same in the head as they are on the tail. One economic model doesn't fit all. You can think of the long tail starting as a traditional economy at the head and ending in a non-monetary economy in the tail. In between the two, it's a mixture of both. Now, like maybe, maybe no one else in the fucking world cares about that, but that is blowing my fucking mind. I mean, our, like, it's, it, our economic system, our, our system, how we go out and make money, like how we get rich, how we get gold. It's like gold trees, trees that just dispense gold are all of a sudden just un- inexplicably growing in my back pasture. And like everyone's like, oh, 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 you love trees, haha. I'm like, okay, well, you, don't, you don't understand. I can sell the gold from these trees and buy AR-15 whatever our system is evolving before our eyes you know it's like it's like you go to the mall so the mall is that traditional market and and you know some stores are that traditional go in pay them money they give you shit you know it's victoria's secret kohl's other mall stores but then some stores are just as viable just as viable but they're weird as hell you know maybe maybe this store sells 30 different varieties of cobras snakes but they they don't even sell them they give them away because you know this bitch just loves to give away snakes he just loves snakes he wants everybody to have a snake but his cobras are nicer than any cobra you'd buy on the black market if you were a warlord and they regenerate well that's that's insane so you know if there's all these you know all these you go to the regular mall there's all these self-regenerating cobra stores people be talking about it with the internet everyone's like oh you see that tiktok Shut up, dude. There's, there's a self-generating Cobra store. Up at the head, so Kohl's, Victoria's Secret, etc. These products benefit from the powerful but expensive channels of mass market distribution. Malls, like we just talked about, stores, TV ads, all that shit that's not the internet and costs money to do. You know, business considerations rule. It's the domain of professionals. You know, you're not going to just let some ragtag bunch of idiots uh, occupy a spot in your mall, you know, you own a mall, you wanna have a store that will pay you rent, but then give you a cut of their profits. I don't know how that shit works, but like, I'm assuming you want a really, really profitable store clearing a lot of money, drawing a lot of people in. 
uh, whether you take a cut or not, and you don't want some, you know, some bumfuck thrift store that no one cares about. But down the tail, where distribution and production costs are low, thanks to new technology and a lot more big words to say everybody got fucking phones, business considerations are often secondary. That motherfucker just loves giving everybody snakes. Instead, people create for a variety of other reasons. Expression, fun, experimentation, reputation, lust for murder. And, and he talks about how Metallica has a very different relationship with the world than some metal musician YouTuber making the same amount of money as Metallica because that's a real thing, but creating whatever the fuck music they want to with no regard for record sales, no regard for censorship. Those two, though they're bringing in the same money, vastly different relationship with our current economic system. Because the, the quest for mass market acceptance requires compromise, you know, a willingness to pick topics of broad rather than the narrow interest. Like Ozzy Osbourne got in big trouble for biting off a pigeon's head. The only reason he that happened to him was because he had a record label. You know, if he didn't have a record label, that's totally cool. You know, even this podcast. You know, on paper, I should talk about sports instead of extinguishing human souls, books, and fitness. But Kevin Kelly also was the editor at Wired. I wonder if these two fellows know each other. I bet they do. He has an article that he wrote called A Thousand True Fans. I say in this new internet age, the way to be extremely successful is, yeah, if you can, if you have a fucking hit, that's amazing. But another way is to have a thousand true fans, a thousand people who just love the shit out of everything that you do, that, you know, you put a free ebook out, those a thousand people, boom, you get a thousand downloads right away. You put a t-shirt out, you get 400 orders. You put a course up, you get, you know, 400 signs signups for your $80 course. That's the way to do it. But he does say that one of the big differences between the head and the tail of producers is that the farther down you are in the tail, the more likely you are to have to keep your day job. Yeah, well, he ain't wrong. Uh, the distinction between professional producers and amateurs is blurring and may in fact ultimately become irrelevant though. Um, because eventually we might make not just what we're paid to make but also what we want to make and both can have value especially from a thinking of new crazy ass creative ideas you know because filmmakers to bloggers to podcasters you know all sorts of producers start in the tail with few expectations of commercial success they can afford to take chances you know they're willing to take more risks because they have less to lose there's no need for permission a business plan or even capital i mean uh, the tools of creativity are now cheap, and talent is more widely distributed than we know. You know I would never get on national TV and say the following words. Or even both. Th those, words are, those words are kinda bad, but like, everybody you know in the world says those words when they're with their friends. You know, but, it, but in the mainstream media, you, know, you don't get crucified if you make the forbidden sound. And, you know, banning the forbidden sound though a seemingly innocuous move I mean, it closes off a whole potential group of creative pursuits now spread that more broadly so you know like on, on national tv you know, you, there's a bunch of censorship so by definition you're censoring things that never will happen so how about we jump into the case study of the lonely island we get to a, a point where 
Chris quotes a famous person that made a prediction that was wrong. So Barry Diller, the media mogul and chairman of IAC, some big broadcasting group, he acknowledged that peer production is interesting, but he scoffed at the idea that it is a, that it is a force capable of rivaling Hollywood. People with talent won't be displaced by 18 million people producing stuff they think will have appeal. He confidently, as you can tell, predicted. Wrong. After college, the three high school buddies, and they're talking about the Lonely Island now. A lot. But in this specific example, the Lonely Island. Three friends, three high school buddies who went to college, but then relocated to Hollywood together. They moved into a big house with low rent on some street, and they dubbed it the Lonely Island. And then they tried to figure out how to break into the entertainment industry as a comedy troupe. In just a few years, so a few whole years before the Lonely Island was internet famous, but then they they were, uh, which is to say they were big enough with the demographic that has traded its TV time for online time, you know, constantly surfing the contours of the online subculture, capitalizing on their online celebrity, the dudes, as they were known, scored better writing and performing gigs. So they actually parlayed their online reputation up the tail. They made some hit songs, including I'm on a Boat, Dick in a Box, and a personal favorite, the critically acclaimed I Just Had Sex. Uh, so what's the lesson in this story? On one hand, you know the, the existing entertainment industry filters did recognize the appeal of the Lonely Island and, and found a way to tap into it. You know, in that sense, maybe the system works, like Barry Diller said, but um, yet if three kids with a video camera doing goofy raps and putting them on their website isn't 18 million people producing stuff they think will have an appeal to borrow Diller's scornful phrase yeah fuck you Diller how dare you even are you even American the truth is that the next generation of talent will probably come from the 18 million people doing their own thing and these are the people who are most likely to save entertainment industry from grinding formula which I think means like dying. Think about how many potential talents now have a chance to find a real audience thanks to the democratized distribution of the internet. Uh, and, I, and I don't know exactly what my note means, but I, I have in all caps here, this is a love story. So yeah, that. What Diller neglects to consider is that today there seems to be less demand for blockbusters than there is for focused or targeted content that isn't for everybody. As the audience continues to move away from top 40 music and blockbusters, the demand is spreading to vast numbers of smaller artists who speak more authentically to their audience. Yes, my priests. We've seen parts of this story before. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the combination of the electric guitar, the arrival of cheap multi-track recorders, and the fine example set by the Sex Pistols. Super cool name, shitty band, they don't even have breakdowns. Uh, gave license to a generation of kids with no musical training, obvious talent, or permission from anyone to start bands and record music. When punk rock exploded under the scene, it was a shocking epiphany for a generation of kids in the mosh pit. Watching someone your age play three chords badly while jumping around on stage, one couldn't but think, I could do that. But punk rock changed the game. Punk rock said, okay, you have your guitar, you don't have to do it right, but you can even do it wrong. Just get up here, it's time to rock. The traditional line between producers and consumers has blurred. And I think that all makes sense for music, for entertainment, but the long tail doesn't apply to the book business, does it? <laughs> God damn it, you're wrong again, it does. Use book business. In 1982, 
a bookseller named Richard Weatherford realized that the then-new personal computer could revolutionize the used book business. There are thousands of used bookstores around the country, all with different inventories. Virtually any book you might want is out there somewhere. But good luck finding it. That's like going to Half Price Books. You know, I tried to get some some books long ago at Half Price Books, like the specific target of books I was trying to get. And I, I walked out with like a book about samurais, a book about Ted Bundy, and then like a psychology textbook in none of the books that I wanted. But spread that shit out, guaranteed. The, all the books I wanted, there's probably 70 copies, 700 copies of all the books that I wanted. So so Chris says, it's, it's worth taking a moment here to understand the used book market. Most of the past few decades, it has actually been compromised of two very different markets. About two-thirds of it was the thriving and efficient textbook business that centered around college campuses. The other third was the relatively sleepy trade of about you know 12,000 small used bookstores scattered about the country. So used textbooks, super efficient market. You know, every year there are millions of students to buy and resell these expensive ass books. You know, the publishers, they always put these new editions in. You know, the bookstores is like highway robbery. And you know, you'd buy a book at the bookstore for $90 and you could sell it for 35 to the bookstore who then turn around and sell it again for 75 and it like they had the built-in supply built-in demand and it was booming but in the case of the non-academic used book market there were few of these efficiencies the typical used bookstores access to secondhand books was limited to you know whoever happened to be local and selling volumes from his or her own collection so as a result the selection at these stores tended to be pretty random. And you know, this is reflecting the taste of the proprietor and the luck of the catch and you know, just like basically random ass stuff like, hey, this person used to be into bodybuilding so there's a lot of fitness books in this bookstore. Or this person is alcoholic so they have a lot of books about wine. Um, it, it was not a comprehensive slice of the book market. But if you're looking for a particular book, that process of cruising around the store and browsing the shelves it's unrewarding and impossible. Um, so in economic terms, what makes the textbook market work is ample liquidity. Uh, so basically, think of think of cash. You can go spend it right now. I can give you my, like we don't, we're so used to this that we don't even think about it like this, but I can give you my fake paper, this paper that we all agree is worth something. I can give it to anybody in the country and they will, give me stuff like I, I can get rid of it for value any second to anybody now contrast that with farmland let's say uh, I have I have 50 acres of corn and soybeans you know that's worth a lot that might be two hundred thousand dollars or whatever but liquidity wise I can't if I have two hundred thousand dollars of cash I can walk up to a Maserati dealer and I can buy a Maserati. If I have $200,000 of my farmland, I have to wait until someone comes along that's willing to buy it and then I sell it to them and they give me cash which is very which is which is liquid and then I can go buy it. So what what they're saying there is that the problem so the textbook market if I have a textbook, I know that yeah, I'm getting kind of screwed over a little bit, but like I know that I can sell it. If I have um, you know, if I'm that used bookstore, I have all these weird ass books, 
but I can't sell them because nobody fucking wants them. You know, there's nobody that's coming in that says, I'm looking for this specific book. I know it's going to be here. I'm going to come buy it. So these bookstores don't have very good liquidity. You know, not enough sellers and buyers of an unbounded set of commodities. So there was, you know, too many products and not enough players and you couldn't find shit. Thus, most buyers simply never considered a used bookstore when they're shopping for something specific. Totally. I made that mistake once with half-price books and then I was like, okay, I get it. I, you know, you come to half-price books as like an experience for fun to see what you find. Not because you're looking for something. But this Weatherford guy was smart as hell and he, he realized that although the economics of each individual bookstore didn't make a lot of sense together, you know, with all the bookstores linked, the overall used book marketplace made a huge amount of sense because the collective inventory of some 12,000 used bookstores, I mean, that could rival the best library in the world. So think about the cultural change he had to institute here. You know, the individual bookstores had to upload their inventory. So like some minimum wage person had to classify everything. And his company was called Alibris and Alibris connected them all together and ensured that the used bookstores were displayed right alongside the new ones at the online booksellers that used his data. Wow, what a smart guy. So we now understand the long tail, how it pumps out content, good and bad, with commercial and non-commercial goals. But now we have this ocean of stuff and we're getting a sniff in this example. We're getting a sniff of what the long tail does. We got this ocean of stuff. Now we need to find it. Now we need a way. We, now we need a way to navigate the ocean. Enter the aggregators. That is what a Libris is. A Libris is a long tail aggregator, a company or service that collects a huge variety of goods and makes them available and easy to find. Typically in a single place. What it did by connecting the distributed inventories of thousands of used bookstores was to use information to create a liquid market where there was an illiquid market before. So you had the demand, you had all these people out there, but they're spread all across the fucking country who want these obscure fucking books because there are people out there that want them. Then you have the supply. 12,000 bookstores distributed randomly across the country, but not related to how the people who want them are randomly distributed. So you overlay uh, a, an aggregator on top and you connect the people who want the books with the people who got the books. And bitch, that's as lucrative as selling crack. Other examples. There are literally thousands of examples, but Chris is going to give two. iTunes aggregates the long tail of music. Spotify does the same thing. Net Netflix does the same thing for movies. I'm just going with like four. eBay aggregates the long tail of physical goods and the long tail of merchants who sell them. And Amazon's competing with that. So there's a bunch of different types of aggregators. You know, there's physical goods, there's digital goods, there's a bunch of different types. But um, one of the most interesting, most lucrative types the only way to reach all the way down the tail, because if you if you have even your business is even somewhat physical, you have to deal with atoms. So the only way to reach all the way down the tail, from the biggest hits down to the garage bands of past and present, is to abandon atoms entirely and base all transactions from beginning to end in the world of bits. This is the way to achieve the holy grail of retail, near zero marginal costs of manufacturing and distribution. Since an extra database entry and a few megabytes of storage basically cost nothing, 
these retailers have no economic reason not to carry everything available. So marginal cost is an econ idea. Basically, what is the cost of one more, of making one more? So if you run a shoe factory, what is the marginal cost of making one more pair of shoes? And you think about that, so you're like, okay, well, it costs me $4 to make the additional pair of shoes, and I can sell them for $40. Okay, that makes sense. What this is saying, for Netflix, what is the marginal cost? What is the cost of me streaming one more show? Nothing. It costs them nothing. They done found the holy grail, the fountain of youth, Shibalba. So we're gonna take a detour into what actually makes those long tail businesses so different. Inventory on demand. So I'm summarizing here, but when you don't fuck with the physical world, shit gets crazy. How much does it cost for one user to listen to one song on Spotify? Effectively, nothing. I mean, it costs something, but it costs like, it costs not even a fart. I mean, it's it's one bean in the colon of Spotify. Amazon's solution to try to take advantage of this inventory on demand idea was print on demand. In its idealized form, books stay as digital files until they're purchased, at which time they're printed on laser printers and come out just like regular paperbacks. Or to put it in its simplest terms, the production and inventory cost of a print-on-demand book that is never bought is zero. These economics are potentially so efficient that they may someday make it possible to offer any book ever made. If you're a bookseller, that means you won't have to be discriminating about what you do and do not carry in a print-on-demand edition because the costs of making a mistake are also essentially zero. But we're seeing that there's something to be said for that, you know, the author, the author producing a book that, that you know, you're holding in your hand that is like exactly what they want you to experience. Because if you're gonna just go to a print on demand, I'm feeling like that's impersonal enough, I might as well just go to Kindle and read it on my phone. But to be determined, think of that principle with 3D printers. Mass customization. You know, hey, I'm I, like knee braces. Right now, I have, I hurt my little knee and I got a knee brace on. But it's a random knee brace. The only categorization is M, because you know I, I don't want to ever admit my legs are small, and so, boom, I got it. I got an M, but you know it hurts my kneecap. Doesn't feel that good, but it helps. Now imagine if there was a service where I could just, you know, somehow they have a service where like I scan my knee with my phone, and it goes into a 3D printer that's in my house because everybody owns a 3D printer, because you don't even get stuff delivered anymore, you, get, you just print it out. I don't know, maybe, that hap maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. Maybe it'll happen for bigger things, I don't fucking know. But I print a custom knee brace, and then I pay a $5 royalty to them. And then I now have a custom knee brace, mass customization. And the marginal cost of manufacturing shelving, storing my my custom knee brace, which is better than any knee brace I could ever buy, it's close to zero. And I only pay when they sell the goods. So they don't ever, you know, they don't ever miss out. They don't, you know, they're never keeping inventory that won't work. So that's a little bit of the future, but I could see that happening. And Chris says, and so too for eBooks and audiobooks, online newspapers and magazines and software. 
all were once delivered on paper or plastic, necessitating all the complexities of physical inventory and delivery. All are now joined by digital versions. So, but some of this long tail stuff is still kind of shitty. Like the experience is not always the same. Um, maybe eventually, because there is, there's something, man, there's something about holding an actual book. But like I prepared for this podcast on my phone with the Kindle app because I could copy and paste. I would really like to use the Kindle cloud reader on my computer, but it, it couldn't copy and paste. But like there's something about holding a book. So maybe, you know, everybody everybody owns a book. Like you go everywhere, you got a phone and you got your book. And the book has smart paper in it. And, you know, I download a Kindle and I can flip the pages and I can interact with it like a normal book. And then when I want a different book, whoosh, I load it up and then smart paper. I don't know. Something like that. But you know, uh, right now some of it's not perfect. But the principles there, the functional gap is shrinking. And, you know, the dis distribution advantages of digital versions are irresistible. So I am the one of the founding members of my company's book club. I have about 300 employees. I'm one of the founding members. And I have been doing this damn podcast and reading so many books for this podcast and preparing so hard on Wednesday. I'm recording this on Saturday. I've got a... We've got our book club book due, and I hadn't read it, and I've been on my list to order it, but like, you know, why would I do that when I could study Musashi for four weeks? And so, finally, yesterday, I ordered the Kindle version. I'm gonna finish this. I don't know, my plan is to like read it in four hours on my fucking phone, because the distribution's amazing. Like, if I delayed this long, and I had to rely on getting a paperback, it'd be impossible. I just have to like lie and say I was sick. And we get to the new tastemakers. So this is, these are all these are all components of this long tail. And the long tail comes about because of those those three things, those ease of production, those connecting the supply and demand now, and then the recommendations, the you know the the intelligent, hey, you like chili claus. You will probably like Johnny Scoville. So there's these new tastemakers. So once upon a time, there was really only one way to launch a hit album. Radio. Nothing else reaches many people as often. Then, in the 1980s, came MTV, which became a good second way to create a hit. You know, it had an even more limited capacity for new music, but its influence over a generation was unparalleled. For the music labels, those were the good times. You know, it was super competitive, but it was a business they knew. They understood the rules, and they could earn their keep by working those rules. That all changed with this pesky thing called the internet. Uh, we're, we're entering an era of radical change for marketers. You know, faith in advertising is, is fucking waning, but the faith in individuals is on the rise. Peers trust peers. You know, top-down messaging, hey, we are a... We are a technology consulting company, and we are very smart, and, um, you know, we can help you with any of your issues. Doesn't work as well as, hey, I know my buddy works for this tech company. I know you got, I know you got tech problems. Want me to introduce you? So much more effective. So much more effective. But now multiply that across the expanse of the internet. You know, Jocko. Great Jocko. Joe Rogan. Um, you know, if, if, if. Even though I know that Joe Rogan's getting paid for sponsoring things, I kind of implicitly am like, you know what? I, I don't think he would screw me over. 
I don't think he would. I've listened to him for 100 hours, you know, 1,000 hours, eh, I don't know, a lot. And if he says that whatever XYZ thing is good, you know, I'm probably going to believe him. Whereas if I, like, I cannot, I would rather have it be silent. I'd rather talk to myself like a crazy person than listen to the radio because those ads, those ads on the radio are, I can't do it. I can't, I honestly can't. I've ruined myself. I cannot. Um, and so, but like I compare those, those radio ads to all listen to ads that podcast podcasters do and i you know i'm kind of like okay this is an ad whatever and if i can i'll skip through it but if it's in the middle i like i'll listen to it whatever and then you know i have that thing in the back of my mind where it's like oh hey if i need if i need counseling better help they're a good counseling service okay online counseling service connect connect you with your counselor what the fuck what the fuck whereas i never would have even thought of that if i was just watching tv so we're entering an era of new tastemakers, these 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 deities of the niches. Um, he illustrates this point by analyzing three bands, but they all suck and none of them are metal, so whatever. Basically, he's saying that the industry is rapidly changing. And we're just we're just joining Chris as he just walks on this journey looking at the long tail. Just finding all these different attributes. You know, we've got the got the three main functions of how the long tail came about. Everybody can create content. Supply and demand can be connected and we've got filters and re recommendations that'll walk us through. Um, the, so the new tastemakers are simply people whose opinions are respected. You know, they influence the behavior of others, often encouraging them to try things they wouldn't otherwise. So both Jocko and Jordan Peterson um, have they did the they did the they did the into thin air 1988 book situation where Jocko uh, really loves the book about face and he has this crazy popular podcast and so um, the book about face starts selling like crazy. Jordan Peterson had this book called the Gulag Archipelago, some obscure ass book. I don't even know about it. I mean, it's like about the concentration camps or something. But um, they made those books so popular that they got those books back into print or. You know, you know, a new edition. And so these new tastemakers are people that aren't celebrities that are helping guide us to make good choices on on things we might like in this in this massive long tail. Another thing that helps guide us in this massive long tail is filters. And filters are the, the catch-all phrase for recommendations and all the other tools that help you find quality in the long tail. So, you know, these technologies, they, and services. So, you know, you can even think of a podcaster as a filter in some ways, or reviews as a filter, but they sift through a vast array of choices and they present you the ones that are most right for you. So, you know, think about it as like the navigation layer of the long tail. Um, you know, so for example, for me, I used Pandora for years. I paid for it, but it, it I just, it started getting shitty. You know, I listened to all of the metal and all of the, the crunk rap, and it just got to the point where for four or five years, I was finding new stuff, maybe seven years, and then it ran out. It was the same songs and amazing songs that I wanted to listen to, and I wanted to maybe go to the artist, and I wanted to listen to their album, but I couldn't. So I discovered Spotify, 
much better. They their Discover Weekly playlist. Every Monday, there's a new list. Every Monday, I come and I sit down on my desk. I put in my headphones and I listen to my Discover Weekly, and it takes me all the way through. And it's I don't know, maybe it's maybe six hours of playlists. But I'm telling you, somehow the algorithm knows metal because it's a renaissance of metal for me right now. You know, a few bands, Patient 67, Kingdom of Giants, For the Likes of You, In Ghosts, Outline in Color, and more. And, and you know, I'm basically and I'm and, I, and the good thing is I'm training the algorithm to get better. I'm training this algorithm to just come back and, and bring me morsels of death. So what do these filters do? Well, in today's long tail markets, the main effect of filters is to help people move from the world they know, the bands that I like, hits. I you know, even if I'm in a niche. There are these hits to a world I don't know via a route that is both comfortable and tailored to my tastes. In a sense, you know, good filters have the effect of driving demand down the tail by revealing goods and services that appeal more than the lowest common denominator fare that crowds the narrow channels of traditional mass market distribution. And um, this bitch Chris is friends with a lot of famous tech people and cites Reed Hastings. So Hastings is uh, Netflix CEO, and he says, Hastings believes that recommendations and other filters are one of Netflix's most important advantages, especially for non-blockbusters. Recommendations have all the demand-generating power of advertising, but at virtually no cost. If Netflix suggests a film to you based on what it knows about your tastes and what others thought of that film, that can be more influential than a generic billboard aimed at the broadest possible audience. So I have a crazy fucking fitness goal. Um, I'm finishing a cut right now. I want to get to be, I don't know, seven, eight percent. Right now, I have kind of like the idea of abs. I kind of have abs, but in good light. But I'd like to, I'd like to have like totally defined abs. And in seven weeks, I'll finish my cut and I will all be there. And then I want to be jacked, which like, or as jacked as I can get, because I know I have a woman's body, but. Um, be as jacked as my woman's body allows, have abs, and run an ultra marathon. So 30 miles. And I found this company called Complete Human Performance. They're a totally online internet consulting company, and their founder, Alex Viata, some badass guy, he deadlifted 700 pounds, he ran a five minute mile, and he ran 30 miles, all within 24 hours. And then like the 24 hour part isn't important. That is just to show that he was training for all those goals at the same time. And so hired a coach from this company, negotiated the yearly subscription at a discounted rate. And uh, in one year and one month, I am going to hopefully achieve those goals. However, that's not the point. The point is my coach has given me these exercises to do I mean, I say it like it's physical therapy, but like just variations of different exercises that I maybe have done or like kind of done, but he has a YouTube channel and so he'll send me videos and say, hey, watch how I want you to do this specific exercise. Here's my YouTube video, which by the way is cool as fuck. Like that's such a crazy business concept, but um, his videos have like maybe 80 views, 100 views. And so, you know, I've, I've looked at three or four or five or six or, you know, whatever it is all the ones he asked me to look at. And 
I go to my, I go to my just my homepage on YouTube, and it's recommending videos that I haven't seen from him, which is crazy to me because he probably has I don't know a hundred subscribers, incredibly small channel, yet there are all these channels that I'm subscribed to that have millions of subscribers, but YouTube that that search algorithm is not placing a large weight on popularity. It is placing a large weight on things that I've shown I'm interested in. So that's crazy. And I was trying to tell my wife and she's like, she's like, shut up, you're such a nerd. We're trying to watch a show, shut up. So I think that she thinks it's pretty cool too. And Chris talks about some limitations of these recommendations right now. Like sometimes they're better for some genres than others. Totally. Like it is a modern day renaissance for metal on Spotify, but I have yet to find a repeatable way to find the rap music that I like. But dude, I'm in the metal renaissance, so one day I will I will emerge and I will descend into the gutter of rap again. But at the moment, all is well. So the last thing we're gonna finish up with right now before we close out this episode, to be continued on one more, is the question of, okay, well, is the long tail full of crap? Yes, but that's why filters are so important to a functioning long tail, because without them, the long tail risks just being noise. So, I mean, in the long tail market, which basically includes everything, Noise can be a huge problem. You know, if left unchecked, noise, random content, or uh, shitty products, they can kill a market. You know, too much noise and people don't buy. But the job of filters is to screen out that noise. If I pulled up my YouTube, and my YouTube had uh, Beyonce, and it had knitting, and it had car accidents because i don't like watching car accident videos even though all my friends do which they're so weird i don't it's horrible I mean, those are innocent people man um and it had sports highlights and it had um love story movies i'd be like fuck this this is useless but when i pull up my youtube it has only shit i fucking care about so yes there's a lot of crap Think of, you know, think of the internet before search engines, but then search engines came, and now, you know, I can, with Google, I can find any information that I want within one minute. And if I can't find it with one minute, within one minute, I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist. That is amazing. Because, uh, you know, obviously unlimited shelf space doesn't inherently weed out the crap. Actually, the opposite, you know, having shelf space that you have to fill and you have to be cognizant that the things you're filling it with produce, that weeds out the crap. Because why take a risk on some crazy ass DVD when you can just stock John Wick? You know that most people like John Wick, you're good. But with unlimited shelf space, it's a non-zero sum game. So zero sum game, winner, loser, just like basketball. Unlimited shelf space, there's no winner, there's no loser. You know, if, if I watch one more show on Netflix, there's no winner or loser. So there's no really, there's really no cost. Like having billions of shitty web pages out there really doesn't affect anything. But ha you know, but having billions of crappy CDs on you know the the Tower Records shelves, I think that's maybe a record store, um, or you know, billions of crappy books at a bookstore that would crush the business. 
because inventory on the web is non-rivalrous like they're not rivalries like it doesn't they're not competing for shelf space and the, the ratio of good to bad is simply it's a, simply a signal to noise problem you know solvable with information tools and so this leads us to to the key to what's different about long tails you know they're they're not pre-filtered by the requirements of bottlenecks of having a store you know so well having a store or even like have a studio exec or talent scouts or Walmart purchasing managers. Um, so, you know, that's more average level quality, uh, but there's none of that screening. So as a result, the shit on the internet can, it can, you know, the result is that the components, they vary wildly in quality, just like everything else in the world. So he talks about information theory and I kind of skipped it, but uh, he says that one one way to say this is that the long tail has a wide dynamic range of quality, awful to great. By contrast, the average store shelf has a relatively narrow range of quality, mostly average to good. So think about that. So, you know, the store, you come in the store, mostly everything is fucking kind of fine. You know, I go the I go the the kitchen supplies aisle. Everything's like, yeah, okay. Like I guess I can buy this pot. I don't care. This is fine. But there's nothing great. Maybe lodge cast iron, maybe that's maybe great, but um, you know, I go there and it's like average to good, whatever. Okay, lodge is good. Now, contrast that with the internet. Let's say I go to Amazon and I try to find uh, a pot. No, I'll find and maybe not even Amazon because Amazon does a little bit of filtering, but like I Google and I just try to find a pot. And you know, I could find I'll find anything. I'll find pots that are like for plants. I'll find pots that are so shitty. I'll find pots that are wicker baskets. I'll find a bunch of bullshit. But I'll also find the cast iron restorer's collection of pans that I can order right now that I want and are exactly what I want. And the only difference between those is if there's a filter overlaid on top of that, I can find the gold nuggets in the field of crap. And that's why niches are different. One person's noise is another person's signal. And I gotta take a quick pick, pit stop and tell you about, about a signal to me, as strong as the bat signal. Felony fights. Now, back in the early days of the internet, 2008, 2009, 2010, I don't know, maybe it's not the early days, but when I started becoming a creature of the internet, I, I stumbled across this production called Felony Fights. Now, at the time, I was training mixed martial arts. You know, 2009, 2010, 2011 to 13, I was training mixed martial arts, so I was watching all types of fight videos, you know, trying to, you know, A, because they're awesome, trying to you know, learn what I could, but then the algorithm just took me. So I, down down the rabbit hole, took me down the rabbit hole. And so I found these these underground Muay Thai fights that were streamed from from Thailand. Super interesting, you know, because their style was totally different than Taekwondo, but a lot of the same principles. Okay, that's interesting. And then the algorithm took me on another journey. And then they, and I, I found, uh, I found Straight Jacket versus Dennis. Yeah. So felony fights, they are they are uh, marketed as, and I, I think they got they got told to uh, please stop. But um, they are they're marketed as two convicts, two two felons fight. 
and it's you know where, where UFC the ref is really really concerned about the welfare of the fighter you know okay oh he took two shots to the head oh okay you gotta pull him off pull him off you feel any fights is like a little bit a little bit looser like uh you get these crazy convicts who probably actually have been in prison, who actually, who I'm sure have been in prison because of the long tail of the internet, like guaranteed you can find some convicts that would fight on the camera for money. And, uh, you know, God damn, it's crazy. But, um, so there's a couple fights where, you know, someone's unconscious and there's like six, seven, eight, nine, ten knees to the person's head. And it's like kind of fucked up, but, you know, the cameraman's like, Hey, dude, stop, man! And and then uh, it's, it's it's insane. And so so uh, th this had this had percolated into our fraternity because we were you know we're the rugby house and you know also the gentleman's house. So you know it's kind of a it's an interesting dichotomy. But um, we watched felony fights pre rugby, and then we we stumbled upon straight jacket versus Dennis. And um, so straight jacket, <laughs> a convict, and in the pre-interview, because they, they build the story a little bit, and in the pre-interview, they're like, "Well, why why do you why are you called straight jacket?" and and he goes, "Well, you know, uh, yeah, it's just uh, you know, I've been locked up a lot, and I, it's just it's just pretty self-explanatory, you know." They're like, "Oh, uh, I think I think I think I'm getting it, okay." And they're like, "Well, have you you uh you like fighting?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I love to fight." Yeah, fighting's awesome. You know, I, I typically I like to fight with metal. You know, I like you know the, like shanks or swords or, or knives or something. But you know, I guess I guess I'll fight with with a fist or whatever. It's it's fine. Yeah, I love I love fighting. And the guy's like, I'm seeing why you're called straight jacket. Okay. And then uh, he says, so so have you been in a bunch of fights? What's the craziest fight you've ever been in? And and straight jacket says, Yeah, you know, probably. Probably the, the time I bit off my first nose. And, I mean, contained in that fucking statement is some serious shit. So, probably the bit off, the time he bit off his first nose. So, there's an implication there. That implication is, you, you wouldn't say, like, oh, probably the time I got hit by a car. That, t that, that implies you got hit by a car once. If you said, probably the time, the first time I got hit by a car. It implies you've been hit by a car more than once. So this bitch fights with metal, and he's bitten off a nose before. Holy shit. And uh, they say, so what's, what's your plan? Apparently they're going to fight with wooden swords first. And so Straight Jacket just gets this crazy look in his eyes, and he's like, well, you know, my plan is probably probably let him let me hit me a couple times with this, and then, you know, take this and jam this motherfucker right in his eye. And then it pans over to Dennis. And Dennis, so Straight Jacket's tattooed up. You can tell he's fit. He's crazy. He's got that like that crazy eye smile. And uh, you know, that's a dangerous man. Then it pans over to Dennis. Now Dennis looks like a frumpy guy who would yell at you uh, when he is serving you at Chipotle. And you know, he'd be like, well, "Chicken or steak, man? What the fuck?" You're like, "Whoa, whoa, Dennis, calm down." Uh, he's wearing an oversized shirt. He's not in shape. He's never worked out in his life, it looks like. And so they have the same interview. And I'm like, well, hey, what's your name? He's like, my name's Dennis. And I'm like, hey, Dennis. And he's like, well, what's your fighting experience, Dennis? And Dennis is like, well, growing up, you know, I, I was homeless. And I used to eat birds. I used to eat out of the trash. 
and the guy's clearly like, uh, okay, what? And so that, that interview's pretty short, because Dennis's fighting experience, so Straight Jacket's fighting experience is uh, fighting with metal, and he's bitten off at least one nose. Not bitten, bitten off. Dennis, yeah, Dennis used to eat out of the trash and then shoot birds for food. Well, this is going to be interesting. So it starts out in Straight Jacket, uh, just as crazy, and Dennis is Dennis. And so they, they are starting with fighting with wooden swords. And uh, you can see this on YouTube now, I promise, I'm not making it up. And there's a couple hits, A couple Dennis gets a couple hits, Straight Jacket's playing, starts to work. Straight Jacket hits in the arm a couple times, he's, he's getting pissed, and then he, he just grabs Dennis's sword, and he comes close, he rips it out, and Dennis is like, stop it, stop it, and Straight Jacket just starts beating the fuck out of him with a sword, he's unarmed, but you know, it's a felony fight, so, you know, morality doesn't apply, and so, uh, finally, Straight Jacket, because he's just like, ah, oh, fuck this stupid-ass sword, he throws the sword down, and then he, you know, does a, just a prisoner double leg, which is, he's got no technique, but a lot of crazy, and he takes Dennis down. Clearly, Dennis has no martial arts training, so instead of pulling guard, Dennis just flops on the ground and freaks out. And then you hear, and you look, and Straight Jacket is biting Dennis's face. He's biting Dennis's fucking face. And Dennis is like, oh, no biting, motherfucker. And Straight Jacket like, clearly does not stop. And then he stops biting him he punches him in the face a couple times and he goes tapped out fool and uh there's an interview with dennis at the end like so how'd it go and dennis is like well i went really good until he bit my fucking face and it didn't draw blood but he's got like clear human teeth marks in his fucking face now that's insane that's crazy but for some reason my friend group that's a that's a well-known video uh, that's a lot of people's noise, but um, that that the weird violent video that that connects our friend group. You know, I think at my bachelor or at my friend's bachelor party at a New Year's Eve party we've had the night I got engaged. I think we played that. Uh, we've played that at like ten different group gatherings. You know, we'll quote tapped out fool. Uh, we'll say no biting motherfucker. Like my wife will bite me, and she'll say no biting motherfucker. Like I don't know once a month. Um, and so what that's just saying is that you got to have these filters, these recommendation engines over the top so that you know I don't want to see Adele. I want to see felony fights. And then there's a graph here, but basically what he's what he says is, you know, as you go down the tail, the signal to noise ratio gets worse. Thus, the only way a consumer can maintain a consistently good enough signal to find what they want is for filters to get better and better. So, you know, you don't really even need a filter if you're watching a video on YouTube that has 100 million views. You're like, well, I bet this is pretty good. But as you go further down, when you're at 1,000 views, pretty freaking sure you, you know, you need to have gotten to that video for some coherent logical reason or it is not going to be something you're interested in. And now we're going to wrap up. I'm just going to give you a preview. What we're going to talk about in episode three I almost threw my phone out the window. I'm warning you, this is a trigger warning. You know, if you're driving, be careful. If you're listening to this around kids, do not yell, damn it, when I read this title. But I'll have to read the title on episode three. And because I have leveled up, I gotta tell you about my sponsor, Wetly Knives. Now, 
Wetly Knives, a good friend, but I don't say nice things about my friends unless it's true. Um, I typically just say mean things to my friends, uh, even if they're not true. So, Wetly Knives, Danny Wetly. Google Wetly, W-E-T-L-I, Knives. But he's got five or six years of hardcore custom knife making experience you know, where everyone else is going out to the bars where everyone else is you know having fun he is forging knives in his garage by himself for years he apprenticed himself under this monstrously giant custom knife maker named tom that that made an appearance on episode one um, his knives are rugged they're reliable lifetime warranty I would say the type of knives that if you wanted to use to butcher something as a hunting knife, as a you know a fixed blade knife that you take when you're hiking, that's what you want this for. Um, he can make a kitchen knife, but I, I would say I would say you you know if you're a man and you do man shit, you want a wetly knife. Because I said it once, I'll say it twice. If my dick was a knife, it's a wetly knife. Tune in next time for episode three. Close this bitch up and learn why I almost found out Chris, hunted him down, and ate him. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.